0: What is up everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest CSG podcast. I am of course your host Jeff Morton. Today with me uh, we have frequent guest um, uh, someone who uh, basically is one of the one of the one of the one of the people that I first brought on to CSG way 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 back when when we were first starting this podcast and it's someone who's been my really good friend through many years now uh, and it's always my pleasure to have, Mr. Sherman Sandy Clough on this show. Hello Sandy. How are you Jeffrey? I am fantastic. You know, uh before I get started, we had a mutual friend who uh unfortunately passed away recently. Um I just wanted to tell you one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done was that one that uh you and Les Shapiro did with us about 7 8 years ago where we talked about the, the, the nuggets at Jake's and that is one of my favorite ever podcasts. I mean I had um, less must have been on about five six times and same same with you and um it's it was unfortunate to to hear and and see that he had passed on but the man lived a great life and I'm almost certain that knowing less he had zero regrets by the time he passed away and uh, um just wanted to say say to uh, Paula and his kids my condolences and, and I'm sure you express the same
1: Absolutely. And uh, uh, Les was one of the greats. Uh, he came to Denver about four years after I did, uh, but I, I always admired him and we were uh, uh, philosophically aligned, uh, not necessarily uh, in terms of our opinions, but uh, the way we approach things. And uh, I can remember uh, after uh, many a Bronco press conference, uh, we'd go out to lunch uh, at a little diner uh, mm-hmm. on Arapahoe, And uh, uh, we'd spend an hour and a half, two hours, uh, just talking about stuff, not always sports, but uh, our, our approaches were were similar. And Les had the one thing that you need in this business and that is so infrequently displayed now. Uh, you certainly have it. Uh, my partner, Sean Rotar, at night on uh, the fan from nine to midnight certainly has a, a great sense of curiosity and wanting to know why things happened the way they did and relentlessly digging to try to find out why and the digging was more important than the expression of opinion and very few people, especially TV people. Uh, or like that anymore. He was relentless in his pursuit of what really was going on and he was as well connected and as well informed as anybody I've ever come across and he could talk more or less about everything. We're about the same age, he's uh, about a year older than I am, year and a half, and uh, he grew up in Chicago rooting for the Cubs and I grew up in New York rooting for the Mets And uh, uh, the Jets and uh, the uh, the Rangers and the Knicks and so on. And, you know, Chicago had the Bulls and the Cubs and the White Sox, of course, and uh, the Blackhawks. And uh, I I don't know that uh, hockey was necessarily less his favorite sport, but he could talk knowledgeably on more or less anything and everything. And I learned a lot from
0: him. You know, it's funny. um, I... lesson i got talking about the chicago bulls and i'll never forget it it's, it was such a less thing to say and we, we can move we can move on after this but i have to get this anecdote out there he and i were talking about the bulls uh the 90s you know we had jordan and all that stuff and you know, the the maybe one of the greatest dynasties in nba history and um i said you know it's you know you had the because i knew less is from chicago i'm like you know start ta- talking about the bulls and he's <laughs> I'm going to try to do a less Shapiro impression here. and It's not going to be effective, but it, you'll, you'll understand it. And, and he said, Jeff, pal, when I was out there, it was Jerry Sloan and Artis Gilmore. <laughs> he said, and the bulls weren't that good. So I don't experience this Jordan stuff. He said, I was out here in the 90s when the nuggets were terrible. <laughs> Yes, yeah. like that is such a less thing to say. I was like, that that is one hundred percent true. But he had that experience, and one of the things I loved about that, and what I loved about doing that podcast with the both of you, was it just it was just I love stories and anecdotes and knowledge, and there was just a ton of that that night, and there was just so much experience, and there was not. And you pointed this out when you talked about less on your radio show, not a more sourced uh, news person out there than Les Shapiro.
1: No, and it was, uh, it was because people did want to talk to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, he would ask questions and he would actually listen to the answers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he broke his share of stories, but, uh, just, just the background he brought to bear, uh, was always to me very uh, impressive and, uh, learning a lot from him about sourcing. And I, I always thought he and Ron Cipolo were uh, mm-hmm. well ahead of the field, lap the field, in fact, in terms of uh, electronic media, uh, actually going to games, not to watch the games for entertainment purposes, but to talk to people.
0: Right. Right. And that is something that is, it's a lost art, I think. And, you know, speaking of that, I wanted to segue into the Denver Nuggets by talking about this. Uh, compliments to your radio station for uh, the strides made this year for covering the Denver Nuggets. Uh, you and Sean Jotar on uh, your show on 104.3 The Fan from 9 to Midnight do a uh, great post-game show of both the Avalanche and the Nuggets. Um, Mac has been at every home game uh this year covering covering the team and i i want to say because i haven't been able to go down to the arena i have appreciated that angle of coverage that that you guys have provided and do you think because of that and because you're at night and you're covering a different angle do you think you have a are, are gaining a, a different perspective on specifically this year's nuggets team because i i think just in my view I've, I've, I'm, I, I'm having a hard time drawing an analogy between this year's Nuggets team and others because it's this year's so weird. You've got a superstar who's basically single-handedly t- carrying this team. In your mind, in your extensive uh, viewing history of this of this Nuggets franchise, can you draw an analogy to history to this team and any in the past? No, oh,
1: uh, because you have the best player. Clearly, the best player in the history of this franchise. You know, with all due respect to Alex and mm-hmm. uh, David and uh, Dan and uh, others who, who have come across Matumbo, and he was here certainly from a defensive perspective. Uh, th- this is the most unique of all Nuggets. Uh, you know, Spencer Haywood, if you want to go back right. uh, more or less to uh, the beginning with the Denver Rockets and the old Auditorium Arena. Uh, But this is a unique player in NBA history. And so he's clearly the best player the Nuggets have ever had. And uh, I've been thinking about this. It's probably the weakest bench I can remember Mm -hmm. from any other team, apart from the really bad ones that we all know about from 95, 96 through 203. Yeah. none of which which made the playoffs and they were, they were just bad teams all the way around. But uh, apart from that, among winning nugget teams, this, uh, there's no other comparison to make Mm. with any other year, with any other era, Uh, there just isn't. And you're right. He carries the team and you have Gordon, who's probably their most consistent player other than Jokic. And for that reason, their second best player, Uh, Barton who comes and goes a little more and after that it's anybody's guess what you'll get from most of the rest of them and from the bench it's mostly bad and the discrepancy between the Nuggets when Jokic is in there and the Nuggets when he's not whether they're playing good teams or bad teams is extraordinary even the other day in beating Brooklyn very easily. Uh, the bench in plus minus terms, were all in negative numbers, right? Uh, Even in a game, they won very easily a game in which Jokic only played 29 minutes, 55 seconds. But he's just remarkable. Uh, He's worth the price of admission uh, to watch. But uh, people should not confuse that with uh, the idea that the Nuggets are anything more than what they seem to be and that's a pretty good team that will probably finish somewhere in the top six and avoid the play-in tournament but will also not be especially competitive in my view whether they play Phoenix, Golden State, or even Memphis in the first round.
0: Oh, yeah, it's one of those things there the only thing I only analogy I can draw in Nugget's history is in and it's a much minor more minor scale you could argue that alex english's peak was from 84 to 86 roughly around there uh as far as production goes and i always thought that the 85 86 nuggets when cal after calvin net got injured english really he hit a different level and particularly when they were playing the rockets in that series it was almost like English was dragging that team with him. Uh, I think it was that game six where he has 40 points and it's just like, you could feel him physically dragging that team with him. A fat lever didn't start carrying the nuggets until about the 87, 88 year. I think at this point it was still English's quote unquote team. And that's the only analogy I can bring because Calvin Nat was such an integral part of that team he added something else, but I have never seen a team like this Nuggets team where you have two major, I mean, huge cogs of your engine who are out and the Nuggets are still 29 and 24. I mean, they are basically what their record is, but they're only 29 and 24 because of Nikola Jokic. Right, right. And in
1: road win, home loss differential terms, uh, they're actually – among the 10 best teams in the league, uh, believe it or not. yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds crazy to say. uh, I don't think, in point of fact, they are one of the 10 best teams, uh, mainly because they don't play very well on their home court. And they don't play very well on their home court because they don't run very much. And maybe one of the reasons for that is that they want to preserve the Jokic's and maybe the Gordon's and Barton's to an extent. And if... They're playing 35 minutes a night or close to that, and they're running. Uh, it, it's going to take its toll. Um, it's, it's unusual to me to see teams come in here, and obviously I have great respect for uh, Jokic, and he's unstoppable in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But teams coming in here are running more than the Nuggets are when the Nuggets play at home. That is also something I've I've never seen before. Not every Nugget team has run, but this is the first year I can remember teams coming in with a conscious strategy. We're going to push the pace and we're going to wear them down on their home court. And I think in some ways, the Nuggets are a better road team than they are a home team. They've actually, I believe, won more games on the road than they've won at home. And of course, they played a few more on the road, but they have a winning road record right now, I believe, 15 and 14. And they aren't much better than that in percentage terms at home. So uh, that's a, a little bit unusual. And you know what hangs over uh, this franchise are these conflicting reports, depending on which day, which week, which month we're talking, that either Murray and Porter are coming back any day now, or they're more or less out for the year. And I do think Michael Malone's been rather consistent about that and almost emphatic the other night in saying in not so many words, one thing I do know is that next year will be a completely different team yeah. with Murray and Porter, presumably healthy at that point. And I don't say he's punting on this year. Uh, my partner, Sean Rotar and I have debated that point a little bit, Right. but I also don't think this is really a team that can expect more than maybe getting through a round of the playoffs, and even that would be an upset.
0: Well, um, it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about – and we're upcoming – the trade deadline is Thursday, so we're a couple days away. And people keep wanting a Hail Mary kind of thing, and the Nuggets just don't have the assets for it. Um, no, they don't. That's the only thing that I could think uh, – from what I've heard – uh, through the grapevine is a and talking to my sources is backup center or uh, a, a, a three and D wing basically three and D wings are exactly. uh, are, are hard to come by um, and for whatever reason this year so are backup centers um, I think what I appreciate more now is that Mason I'm appreciating more now what Mason Plumley gave this Nuggets team because he gave them a stable backup center. And what you have seen now, I will say, due to certain decisions, a certain coach made last year after the Nuggets traded for a backup center, um, maybe the Nuggets were inclined to come into this year with, without a, without a uh, uh, backup center uh, to play the kind of the Nets style uh, last year when they had Jeff Green playing basically a backup five. But um, what we have seen, it is, it hasn't worked. And I think that has been one of the reasons that this bench unit hasn't been good. So when you look at this trade deadline, keeping in mind, they've had boogie cousins on two 10 days, which expired yesterday. When you look at this Nuggets team, where do you think their needs uh, as is without, you know, swinging for the the fences? uh, What do you think their needs are specifically?
1: Uh, you mentioned too. Um, if if Cousins is not retained, they they definitely need a backup center. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there's no two ways about it. Um, uh, I, I I sort of like the starting lineup the way it's it's set up now. Ideally, you'd have Morris who would be willing coming off the bench and Barton who would not be so willing uh, coming off the bench. But uh, it it's fine. Uh, They have too many guards and too few uh, wing players. Mm -hmm. Uh, George Carl talks about the need for an orchestrator, but George has been consistent about that. He's been talking about that for two or three years uh, beyond Jokic because you're asking Jokic to be your lead scorer, your lead playmaker, your lead rebounder, uh, basically directing everything on offense. Morris is a nice, steady, backup, 25-minute-a-game point guard. But uh, the three and D wing, uh, without question, uh, Barton's very erratic. Um, mm-hmm. Reed is probably the closest thing they, they have. Uh, and they started him the other night and I, I, I was chuckling and that not, not at him specifically, but uh, I noticed the difference between Reed shooting threes uh, in the first, second, third quarters and shooting them when the game was on the line in the five minutes that uh, are the most critical in close games, Right, the last five minutes. And the Nuggets certainly in the last five minutes of close games don't have many options other than Jokic and maybe Gordon, who Mm -hmm. has hit his fair share of clutch shots uh, this year. Uh, Morris, apart from the circus shot, the other night doesn't make threes in close games barton doesn't do it uh but you're right they're hamstrung uh and you know you do have a certain amount of consideration for for the fact that uh, you know they knew murray would be out for most of the season uh if he does play it, it it'll be march very late in in the regular season it seems to me i, I you may have heard something different uh, And again, in the last week, I heard there's no way Porter comes back. I mean, I I, I sort of sensed that two weeks ago when they they were talking on one of the telecasts about how he goes through his pregame routine, does some shooting and all. And one night he was feeling a little more uh, frisky than he usually does. And it looked like he wanted to start taking some jump shots. And he was surrounded by. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by uh, <laughs> some of the, the trainers that are just saying, uh, no, you can't jump at this point. Don't, don't even think about doing that. And I figured, you know, in January, a guy who can't jump probably isn't on the verge of uh, coming back. And I'm not aware that Murray's done any three-on-three or five-on-five work. And from what I understand, uh, even once he starts doing that, it's another four to six weeks before he's ready to play so uh, you know Malone's been asked about what they'll do at the trade deadline and of course nobody tells the truth or right. at least not very often about their intentions but uh, I agree with you they, there's no blockbuster trade that they can make uh, the likes of which New Orleans made of right. course uh, right. uh, earlier for C.J. McCollum I mean the Nuggets aren't in line for that kind of move
0: well specifically you know When you think about it, they just signed Porter and Gordon to a uh, extensions in the offseason, which prohibits them from being traded anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. So that takes two assets, regardless of Porter's injury, that takes two guys right off the table. Um, And then you're left with it's quote unquote big pieces. You're left with Jamal Murray, who is currently recuperating from an ACL and Nikola Jokic, who you're no and you're never going to trade in a million lifetimes. And so right now you're left with ancillary pieces that don't amount to a lot. And the nuggets don't have a ton of draft picks to trade. So Correct. it's, it's, it is hard to see how they can do anything without, I think from what I've heard uh, in some quarters, Faku Kampasso and uh, Jamichael Green probably are, could be had, but um, I don't know what that nets you Um I think they just want a competent backup center or three D wing, and honestly, I think yeah. I think that's what it is. Now, you were talking about Porter and, and Murray. Uh, Porter, um, his his surgery wasn't as what it was portrayed initially uh, in the in the media. I I've, I've spoken to people with knowledge of the situation, and a lot of them have told me. They were very frustrated after it came out about his surgery that it was portrayed like it was another major back surgery which it wasn't uh it was a pain relieving surgery which happens frequently when you have disc operations when you're an athlete i believe someone on your station i think uh or maybe someone else no it's actually a um a couple athletes um i thought former broncos actually were talking about how they had similar spine surgeries And they said that uh, sometimes because you're an athlete, it takes multiple pain relieving surgeries. They shave down the nerve, you know, maybe cut back a little bit of the lumbar. And that's what happens. Um, And Mike said he felt, you know, from what we know, uh, I understand, like 200 percent better once the surgery was completed. Now, obviously, there's no contact involved with that and all that stuff. But my thing with ACL surgeries with Murray is. I point to Danilo Gallinari and I say, look, Gallo had a botched procedure and then he did a surgery, but it took Gallo the better part of five months uh, after his surgery, his second surgery, to really round in the shape. And in fact, if people remember when he came back in the 15, 16 season, or excuse me, the 14, 15 season, it took him till March till he started looking like himself. Just that's the nature of knees. And it's one of those. It's one of those things. And even if Murray, when if when Murray comes back, I don't expect him to look like himself. I expect no. him to, to be uh, out there and anytime he helps. But I think that's kind of where I expect that. So, I think the Nuggets probably rightfully are looking at this year, saying whatever we get, if if when however these two come back, we don't know. We're not expecting a miracle to happen. And next year they're going to look as Malone said quite a bit different and probably quite a bit better.
1: Yeah, and I think next year is the year in which they make their move. And I understand the frustration and, and George has made the point, George Carl, on our uh, Nugget postgame shows that, you know, you're, you're basically wasting a year of Jokic, right. and you can't throw away years. It's not like you got a five or six year window here. And of course, you've got a league this year that isn't especially strong. Uh, I, I think Phoenix is extremely good, obviously, uh, maybe even great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Golden State's pretty darn good, uh, especially when Green comes back. But they certainly aren't pushing that. I heard him talk the other day, and uh, his whole thing is, uh, you know, I have to be a hundred percent when I come back. Ninety percent, ninety-five percent, not good enough. Uh, talking as if he'd be back for the playoffs, of course, but Mm -hmm. what's the point in rushing the regular season? And this is a guy who's on a team with the second best record uh, in the league. And so I can't imagine a team like the Nuggets in sixth place right now in its conference. I can't imagine Denver uh, pushing either Murray or Porter to come back but it isn't a terribly strong league outside of those two teams. You really can throw. And I think Memphis is intriguing because Morant has emerged certainly as a superstar, but apart from those three teams, maybe Miami in the East, if Miami is whole, uh, you're talking about four teams that can win a title in a 30 team league, uh, kind of same as it ever was, but, uh, the, those four teams in a stronger league, if the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 teams were stronger, those four teams would have, I think, a lot to worry about, maybe even in the first round, but that's not the way it sets up this year. Uh, maybe it'll be different uh, next year, uh, more competitive, but maybe it won't be all that much different. And if the Nuggets get these two guys back, especially Murray, I think they will be a lot better, obviously. And they won't have to ride Jokic as much.
0: Well, uh, I'm gonna we'll wrap up a Nuggets discussion with this, um, and then I got to do an ad read for DraftKings. But I, I, I think I think people need to, and this is the way I've been trying to say this on the podcast this last season is that I think people need to retrain their minds to this is a year of survival. <sighs> there's very little the nuggets can actually do aside from the players who are on the court to move them forward to a, a level that we thought they were going to be post Aaron Gordon trade last year. So do you think when you come into this, do you think like you pointed out yeah, when they are talking about quote unquote, wasting a year of Jokic, Do you think that is the way the Nuggets think, or do you think like we got to maximize this roster the best we can when these guys are healthy rather than thinking about short term, short term moves that may not move the needle far enough this year?
1: Yeah, I there might be some things they could do Mm -hmm. to make themselves marginally better, but I think their calculation now is that marginally better still doesn't mean championship contending team in 2022 next year you see what you have um I think one of the benefits this year without Murray and Porter is that you've seen Gordon emerge as a better form of himself right uh and and pretty consistently playing well with Jokic and You know, he can get 20 if you need him to. Uh, He can help you scoring 10 or 11. Uh, He's not a great rebounder, but he's a good rebounder. He's a very good defender. I think he's clearly the best defender they have, the most versatile defender they have, because he can guard guards, he can guard forwards, he can guard bigs. You know, his defensive range is remarkable. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's a nice, solid piece. And in theory, he because he doesn't care about scoring a lot of points, he should play very well with Murray and even Porter when those two come back. So I, I think at that point, they have four. And the question is, who is the fifth guy? Do you have Murray at the point? Uh, I know basketball is positionless uh, more and more now. but I would I would like to see them come up with uh, a point guard and maybe it's Highland next year. Um, I, I think Highland uh, shows some promise. Uh, he's a rookie, so he makes mistakes. Uh, he's not great defensively. But I think when he learns to play and doesn't try to do too much, and, and that'll come about gradually, I think he's a nice piece, and I think Najee is a nice piece. I think they've uncovered some things this year, but I, I think I, I agree with your contention that they haven't quite written this year off, but they know who they are by
0: now. I think that's that's an excellent point, Sandy. Okay, now uh, I'm going to read uh, to you about DraftKings Sportsbook, and then we will get to our next subject um The moment we've all been waiting for since September is finally here. In the honor of the big game, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the of Super Bowl Fifty Six, is giving customers fifty six to one odds on either team. Bet just five dollars or more, get two hundred and eighty in free bets if your team wins. If you're not a new customer, you can bet on uh, Super Bowl Fifty Six props instead. DraftKings Sportsbook offers a wide uh, range of props throughout the big game they also do the same game parlays which people have been taking advantage of i would highly suggest you take advantage of that if you want to make your money go stretch further download DraftKings sportsbook app now and use promo code mhs and get 56 to 1 odds on either team bet just five dollars and get or more And get 280 and free bets if your team wins. That's promo code MHS at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Okay, Sandy. The Denver Broncos are undergoing... Uh, a change in ownership for the first time since 1984, um, which is kind of true, but you could also argue that the change in ownership began in 2013 14. Um, the only I always get leery of ownership changes because of the hell the Denver Nuggets went through and the Colorado Avalanche went through in the late 90s. <laughs> when liberty put them up for sale uh through ascent and it took them three years to find someone who's going to uh both keep the team in town and um uh you know be able to buy it that the ascent shareholders would approve obviously this isn't the same situation this is they're being put up for auction it's a family uh trust that is going to be uh obviously receiving this but um, I guess t- to start this conversation off, does it make you nervous at all because i I went just I get anxiety when I'm t- talking about ownership changes because there's always the potential that there's a Dan Snyder out there who could who could just uh, ruin your franchise.
1: Yeah, there is that potential, but I think we've seen with no real owner. No real authority figure who can hold people accountable—the kind of damage that can do. Right, and it goes back more than six years, really. It it does go back to 2013, and people often say, "Well, what do you mean? They went to a Super Bowl that year. Uh, they went to a Super Bowl and won it two years later." Yeah, but the seeds of organizational dysfunction were planted during those times in which there was no figure who would hold a coach or a lead executive, either on the business side or the football side accountable. So I, I think we've seen the effects of that and, and the kind of uh, uh, discord and really distrust it has engendered with the fan base. Uh, I've never seen over the last three years Uh, this kind of uh, fan mood where you have tens of thousands of no-shows for key games late in the year on nice weather days. Uh, People are saying some variation of get back to me when there's a new owner, get back to me when there's a different coach, get back to me when there's a quarterback here doesn't have to be Peyton Manning or John Elway, but uh, at least a a competent quarterback who can uh, keep us in games. And in a league where playoff teams average 27 points per game year in and year out, uh, the Broncos are lucky to average 20. And maybe a new coach can help with that. And maybe a new offensive coordinator can help with that and maybe a pass game coordinator and a run game coordinator. Uh, (laughs) The number of coaches that are hired now (laughs) is astounding uh, to me, but they need, they need a quarterback and they aren't at the same time, just a quarterback away. Right. Uh, This roster is frankly not competitive at this point with the Raiders and especially with the Chargers and the Chiefs. It isn't, it isn't. Um, yeah, Could they pass the Raiders next year? I, I suppose it's possible, but the Raiders were a playoff team this year. The Raiders won 10 games this year. Uh, and uh, the Chargers and Chiefs have, have their quarterbacks. Uh, they have their flaws, but their, their flaws aren't nearly as severe as the Broncos. So this isn't going to be an overnight quick fix. And I get the sense that Nathaniel Hackett knows that and that George Payton, most importantly, knows that, uh, the general manager, and more so than the new owner who may emerge in March, may emerge in July or August, who knows when they'll get through with this process. But I'm assuming whenever a new owner comes in, a new controlling owner comes in, that that person will empower his general manager and his coach. And I would also assume that we would never get a Daniel Snyder, that the vetting process now is very much more thorough than it was in the late 90s when Daniel Snyder took over Washington. And of course, still brings shame and embarrassment to the NFL to this day. To this day, yes.
0: I, 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 it's It's fascinating for me because we, I mean, the Broncos are obviously the premier entity regardless in, in, in Denver. I mean, there's no one, there's nothing more essential to the, the both the civic pride and ego of the Denver sports community than there is the Broncos. And, and you get the feeling that there's a lot of, excitement but a tremendous amount of anxiety f- f- uh, uh, about this specific thing because the owner is the, the the thing that is the constant the owner is the thing that is never movable and we're finding that and we're going to get to this in the in the last segment about the my major league baseball but the this is just the the constant and you need a steady ship there and the and obviously the broncos have not had a steady ship for a long time and you, as you rightfully pointed out do you think having that stability up top will inevitably filter down to through all the opera, operations at the valley um, just by having someone that makes everyone answerable, basically?
1: Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. And I think they have hired someone who considers himself as a first time head coach to be uh, someone who will will always be judged uh, every day, every week yeah. and held accountable for what he does. I think he has the courage of his convictions. He's willing to try new stuff, which I find refreshing, right. especially coming off the last three years, yes. where there's been such a stagnant sense of uh, who the Broncos are and what they represent and I think the general manager, even though he's got five years left on his contract, knows that he doesn't have five years to build a respectable football team. Mm -hmm. That has to happen in the next couple of years. And there has to be discernible progress, not progress along the margins. Some things are better. Some things are no different. Some things are a little worse. It's, It's sort of, two steps forward, one step back. I think there need to be however long it takes, and it may take two, even three years before they look like in an increasingly strong conference with a bushel full of young quarterbacks Mm -hmm. that they look like a team that can compete and even succeed uh, once they get to the playoffs, compete for a playoff spot and succeed once they get there, this isn't something that's going to happen overnight, but I think the approach they're going to take, now there may be, who knows, an Aaron Rodgers exception to this, but I think they will build through the draft. They like to accumulate draft picks. Uh, I think Peyton is a grinder, uh, something they haven't had, frankly, in the last five years or so, and, I think at the top there will be someone to whom these people have to answer, and to whom they have to uh, explain why things are working and why certain things aren't. And I don't really think you'll get an owner who will have a quick trigger finger or anything like that. And I know they've had a lot of coaches here, mm. uh, going back to uh, uh, really the last nine years. You've had Fox. Kubiak, Joseph, Fangio, and now Hackett—that's five coaches in nine years. That's not a stable franchise, and it's no wonder that in the last six years, the Broncos and the Jets are the only teams that have not qualified once for the NFL playoffs.
0: I just want to throw this out at you. I think maybe people point at last year's draft and you know Fields and and uh, uh, Jones as as missed opportunities and i'm not necessarily on that board but i think we're going to look back at the 2018 draft and not drafting josh allen as maybe one of elway's if not elway's biggest mistake because he was right here in the backyard he was right up there in laramie and it's it was such a layup it was such a layup to just for elway to make the effort to go up to talk (laughs) To Josh Allen or see him and all that stuff and they chose to pass on it and they got Bradley Chubb and unfairly for D- Bradley Chubb who has been beset by injuries his his young career but I think that may be it because the quarterback will stabilize your franchise even if it's a terrible franchise um you know you need the right pieces and like as we learned with Trevor Lawrence you could have the worst coach on the planet who's can start to ruin your career but uh there's also other cases where a guys just so good that he's going to do that so that's what i look to with with the mistakes is that 2018 maybe the, the broncos don't have the organization intact to make Allen what he is like right now in buffalo but at least the seeds of that talent would be there and it's very frustrating to see him perform this well with the buffalo bills oh, sure. and see what the broncos could have had
1: uh, it is, and uh, you referred to it. Not only didn't they draft him, they made an enemy out of him yeah. by snubbing him when he worked out up in Laramie and sending a few scouts, but Elway wasn't there. No, nobody who really had decision-making authority chose to appear, and he certainly noticed that. Mm-hmm. And boy, I, I know he doesn't play in the same division, but every time Buffalo make uh, plays the Broncos, he's loaded for bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he looks at the Broncos. Uh, I mean, other teams passed on him too. Uh, he was the third quarterback selected, right? right. right? Mm-hmm. And the first to become an MVP was Lamar Jackson, who was the fifth quarterback taken right. in that class, <laughs> right at the tail end uh, of the first round, but. This is part of the price you pay when you miss on a quarterback in the first round. There are all sorts of reverberations, uh, apart from the guy not being able to play and building a team in a fashion that I think assumed that Paxton Lynch by 2017, maybe 2018, would be the starting quarterback. Mm -hmm. And then when he's not, You've got problems, right? And Josh Allen bore a certain physical resemblance to Paxton Lynch. I think that scared him off. I think his inaccuracy at Wyoming scared him off. Buffalo was very smart to take him. And they also had Brian Dable there to develop him. Mm -hmm. And I think we can, looking back on it, say with great certainty, the Broncos did not have a Brian Dable uh, equivalent. So I'm not sure Josh Allen would have worked out here nearly as well as he did in Buffalo. But their thought was, we have a strong-armed guy. We will not throw everything at him right away. We'll let him play for a year. We don't have a great team. We'll let him play for a year and get comfortable and do the things he's good at doing. And then we'll start to break down his passing motion and we will change the way he throws the ball. But we always know that in bad weather in Buffalo, at least bad weather within reason, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. he will be able to perform effectively. And yet at the same time, I thought Buffalo, through no fault of Josh Allen's, of course, blew a golden opportunity oh, yeah. and so is kansas city in the last couple of years because you only get so many shots at it. right so it, listen we, we start with the premise that winning is hard in the nfl sustained winning is even harder and putting up multiple championships kansas city's been the home team for the last four afc championship games out of that, they have one Super Bowl title, and they were kind of lucky to get that one. Mm-hmm. They were down 10 points with 10 minutes to go in that Super Bowl. and right. came back to win. But for most of the games, San Francisco was the better team. Patrick Mahomes is 26 years old. I don't think he'll be playing at home in the next four AFC championship games. Right. His best chance may have passed. This may have been the best Buffalo team they'll have, now Dable's gone, and I guess Dable and McDermott, two fine coaches in their own right, were at each other's throats by the end of the year. Yeah, uh, McDermott <laughs> was happy to get rid of him, uh, let him go and be a head coach, and Dable was thrilled to get away from McDermott, from what I've heard. Um, yeah. So we'll see how they do with with that kind of brain drain uh, next year. And I, I I did think the Broncos should have given Dable. Uh, more consideration even Mm -hmm. if it had meant waiting but but I do like Hackett uh who is very comfortable being an outlier uh very comfortable being different and I don't know that he'd be a great coach for Tom Brady or Peyton Manning uh because he is different Mm -hmm. and a little bit goofy at times Mm -hmm. but Aaron Rodgers plays for the joy of playing and I think for a young quarterback, assuming that's going to be part of the Broncos program, whether they get Aaron Rodgers or not, at some point, they're going to have to draft a young quarterback because Aaron Rodgers isn't going to play uh, as long as Tom Brady did, I I wouldn't think. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a young quarterback, that approach, uh, a looser approach, but a, a very intense process where you're being coached a lot but you don't have to master a playbook. That's this thick. Right. Uh, you know, I think that'll be very good for young players. And I think the Broncos have to get younger. Uh, yeah. Now more on defense than on offense, but younger all the way around. And, and the good thing about this past year is that, that I think they found an outstanding running back in Javante Williams uh, who, if they don't burn him out and I don't think they will, Uh, can be a terrific back for the next four to six years
0: for, you know, I I wanted to point out that there was someone on your station. I don't forget who was this, maybe Dan Jacobs. who was talking about this, this weekend was talking about how the Broncos roster wasn't as good as people were making it out to be. It isn't. isn't. Yeah. And I was like, that's a good point because if it was as good as they made it out to be, they wouldn't have been had the poor record that they had uh, even with the quarterbacks. And that's a very true statement and i'm wondering if there is this feeling that people are kind of wedded to the aaron Rodgers thing to the point where they want history to repeat itself like with manning and my feeling is okay but you've got to as lo- as someone who's like not a media member for the brokers and i'm a fan I look at look at the team and I want I as long as I understand the plan, I'll be OK with if there's rough edges to it. The problem the Broncos have had the last several years is that there's been no real plan other than no. other than muddle through on offense and get a mediocre quarterback. I'm OK if the Broncos say like, OK, we want to find our quarterback, but this is how we're going to get there. I'm OK with that within reason. Obviously, if it's too long, then it's it's kind of a sunk thing that. Um, I'm okay with it. And I don't think the Rogers thing is necessarily, I don't have any intel here, but I I don't, don't necessarily think the Rogers thing is something that everyone should hitch their wagon to for this. I think this is going to be a long process that may take a little bit longer than people are really prepared for right now.
1: Well, um, you know, you hear all sorts of things about, uh, Rogers coming here, but, I agree with the fans who have who have heard of all of these grand stories uh, before and certainly heard them last year during the offseason, how uh, a savior was coming to the rescue. And I think fans have grown numb uh, to that kind of talk that, uh, you know, they the Broncos won't talk about rebuilding, but George Payton's actions suggest. Uh, that he is looking at it uh, that way. And and all I know is Aaron Rodgers said he didn't want to be part of a rebuilding program. I don't know why the Packers, I know they're in salary cap trouble, but teams can get around that. New Orleans has for years. Uh, The Packers can get around that and still keep key players. Mm -hmm. Packers aren't rebuilding. They've been the last, two before this year, NFC championship games. And probably uh, if they had any kind of special teams uh, success this year, uh, they'd, they'd have been at least in a third straight NFC championship game. Right. Uh, I don't think they're rebuilding. I do think the Broncos are rebuilding. So I, I, I don't know why this would be Aaron Rodgers' best option unless his priority is enhancing his legacy by building up stats and winning the Super Bowl would be nice along the way but it isn't a priority Mm -hmm. and if winning the Super Bowl isn't a priority and other things are and you don't often hear Aaron Rodgers talking about football Aaron Rodgers has a lot of interests. I understand and I think he feels he knows a lot more than he actually does on a variety of subjects. I never heard Tom Brady talk anything but football. Right. And I don't hear Aaron Rodgers talk football very much. Right. So, and unless he comes with a singular motivation uh, to win a Super Bowl, I, I don't know. It's. It, it's another one of those Band-Aids. I mean, it's a nice Band-Aid. Um, you know, they'll be fun to watch, uh, more fun to watch than they have been. But uh, can he play uh, edge rusher? Uh, can, can he play off-ball linebacker? Can he play in the defensive secondary? They're, they're going to lose. I didn't think the defense was that great this year. Yeah, I think in some statistical areas they were, but I didn't think it was an impregnable defense by any means, certainly not in big spots and they're going to lose a lot of people. off. I know they have 11 picks, but <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be picking, I'm guessing mostly offensive players because they've got an offensive line to fix, uh, You know, maybe a running back to draft, certainly a quarterback. Um, I I would guess uh, at least a couple of offensive linemen. uh, They need to think about drafting. Their pass protection wasn't that good uh, this year. Uh, There are a lot of things to fix. And simply bringing Aaron Rodgers in here isn't going to do it. And for a guy who loves his draft picks, uh, you're going to have to give up at least two number ones. Right. Uh, in in that kind of transaction, and I would think a lot more than that. But you start with two number ones, right. and They would be the next two number ones. So you're you're taking yourself out of the uh, top portion of the draft mm-hmm. for the next couple of years. I I don't see that, and I think that acquiring Rogers would play into that quick fix. Hey, we can be Super Bowl contenders mm-hmm. overnight, and Again, competitively, if he wants to win a Super Bowl, I don't know why he'd come into a division with Mahomes and Herbert and a conference with at least nine starting quarterbacks, 26 years of age and younger, and about half a dozen of those have proven to be outstanding quarterbacks already.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent, excellent point, Sandy. Okay, um, we are going to move on, hard transition here. We're going to move on to um, our um, – the the sad sack of uh, Major League Baseball. <laughs> That's the best way I could put it right now. Um, they are currently in a lockout that has been going on for 67 days, I believe, 65 maybe. Um, All right. And I uh, – obviously i'm not in the weed so i can't explain everything to everyone but this uh the service days and the manipulation of service days by the major league baseball owner seems to be the primary sticking point between owners and players uh, the players just rejected the owner's last offer um which was essentially uh if someone becomes um, a a, an award-winning player during this certain amount of time there's draft picks that are compensated i couldn't really understand it maybe you can um but there's like three different ways around this turn this service manipulation which basically like extending which means for the people who are listening to this Extending a players time in minor league baseball in order to put off when they kick into arbitration and all this stuff. It's, it's, it's baseball. So it's that complicated. So for you, as someone who's been watching this, what is your interpretation of where things stand between the owners and players here? And do you think there's a way out of this?
1: Uh, From this standpoint right now, I don't think we're going to have spring training.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, I bet the under on 162 games. Uh, they've had two chances to be cooperative and even innovative. And they've blown them both. Uh, mm-hmm. One was the, the absurd 60-game season a, a couple of years back where they were the one sport that was uh, at war with itself during the pandemic, so much so that they came up finally with a plan that was uh, ridiculous. And I I think they got lucky that the Dodgers won the world series. So the champion at the end of the day was legitimate, right? Uh, But the season was a farce. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now, I I mean the finances should be the easy part, right? I, I was looking at Max Scherzer's tweet the other day and it seemed pretty reasonable to me. We want a system where threshold and penalties don't function as caps, right? Yeah. Allowing younger players to realize more of their market value. makes service time manipulation a thing of the past and eliminates tanking as a winning strategy. We've heard a lot about tanking in the last week in another sport Mm -hmm. (laughs) that may be formally investigated. Yeah. Uh, The NFL claims they'll do their own investigation on it. So I I think all those things are reasonable. And the thing that makes me dubious about a settlement is that the easy part is the finances and they can't even get together on that. (laughs) And they can't even agree on uh, the need for a mediator. Major League Baseball wants one, players say that just mucks up the process. And they're right in terms of the history, It sure Mm -hmm. didn't work in 1994, and they tried mediation then. Didn't do anything at all. This is true. In the process. To have one guy or one woman, whoever it turns out, shuggling back and forth with two sides not talking, I agree with the players on that. Uh, You know, and and the idea that the Orioles are using these subpar pitchers that they know are subpar pitchers because – losing aggressively benefits teams Mm -hmm. like the Astros and even the Cubs, uh, leading up to the 16 World Series that they won, uh, that it's proven to be a helpful strategy. But who wants to pay full prices to watch a team, as the Astros did lose 100 or more games for three years in a row, uh, or watch the Rockies under any circumstances, a challenge. But watch the Rockies in this kind of environment, right. and sure enough, there's Dick Monford, one of the lead negotiators on the Major League Baseball side. What could go wrong with that?
0: Oh my God! Well, let me let me. I'm glad you brought up uh, our good friend Dick, because um, I I saw that he was part of the lead negotiator, and the the man. The man was an integral part of the nugget or the, the Rockies paying out fifty million to get to trade Aaron Olin Aeronado. No one should trust Dick Munford's negotiating skills. I, I I let's remove him from the picture. Did remind me though that Jerry McMorris was a big part of the first of the yeah. strike in ninety four, and because he fancied himself at that time George Steinbrenner. And it was uh, the the nugget, or the nugget. I keep saying the nuggets. The Brock, The uh, oh jeez. The Rockies had the had the, had the financial clout because of their massive attendance back back then. Right. These, this right. Rockies team is in a completely different position. They are a laughing stock of Major League yes. Baseball, an absolute laughing stock. The players do not take the Rockies seriously. This is from everyone I've spoken to about the way Major League Baseball players view the Rockies. That, that Nolan-Arenado trade was like the coup de gras. That was like, the you guys are not a serious organization. You don't know what you're doing. Right. And one of the unfortunate parts about this is if you have Dick Montfort up there taking a lead in negotiations that involve the strongest labor union in professional sports, which is the Major League Baseball Players Union, you don't, I mean, whether you stand a chance or not is a different thing. I can understand why the owners would want mediation if you have Dick Montfort taking the lead.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good point. Um, but it seems to me, uh, I've said this for years, baseball is a great game, uh, but it's not a great sport. It's poorly administered. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Manfred's been a major disappointment, I think, as commissioner. He says ridiculous things all the time. He C-League was a little better at the end than he was at the beginning, but uh, Major League Baseball hasn't had, uh, in my view, a competent commissioner uh, since Dave Vincent Giamatti, yeah. uh, and, and they weren't around long uh, for different reasons. But I go back, uh, when I first started going to baseball games, as was virtually a toddler. Uh, back in 1964, I remember uh, being most curious whether I was watching uh, the Red Sox, who were very bad men at Fenway Park or the Mets at Chase Stadium, were very bad. Or the Yankees, who by the mid-60s, were very bad. I want to know who's pitching, right? Yeah. And um, the starting pitcher would go, you know, seven, eight innings, uh, would often complete a game, even if. You know, especially in 68, the year of the pitcher, the final score was two to one. Both pitchers could complete the game. And the starting pitchers kind of being phased out of of baseball. Mm -hmm. Uh, 39 pitchers 11 years ago were 200 innings. Last year, decade later, four pitchers in baseball were 200 innings. There won't be in the current environment, uh, unless there are major changes, there won't be a Rocky pitcher who throws 200 innings ever again. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And that's, that's a big draw for serious baseball fans. Who's the starting pitcher today? Because, you know, Earl Weaver had the famous line, the great baseball manager, uh, when asked about momentum, Said momentum is tomorrow's starting pitcher. Right. Earl right. Weaver looked at it that way, uh, and you know, the, the baseball's most marketable position is pitching. Right. 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 And the the game's not as much fun when you don't have an Obaldo Jimenez the way he was for a few years around uh, 2009 2010. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. He was a major draw. You wanted to know when he was pitching. Mm -hmm. Attendance was greater on nights he pitched.
0: It was. You're uh, not
1: going to see an Ebaldo Jimenez here again. You're not. You're not going to see a pitching staff like the one they had uh, in 2009 when they had their best team.
0: Yeah. Jason Marquis was on that. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, you're Mm -hmm. not going to see pitchers throw. Forget about 200 innings, 100. 75 to 190 anymore That that's going to be fairly rare. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, you see teams, I mean, successfully employing, uh, this strategy, but it's funny in the playoffs when you need some length, uh, some teams don't get that. And it's a reason that, uh, they, they don't win and, you know, the, uh, I'm not. I'll watch a good baseball game, even if it lasts three and a half hours. I I don't look at my watch during baseball games that are entertaining, but I mean three hours, eleven minutes, four and a half pitchers a game, uh, being used. I mean, give me a break. The Larusaization of baseball has has gone way beyond anything Larusa. Uh, envisioned and, they, and they've got some rules in place now that limit that but still you're looking at four and a half uh, pitchers uh, per team per game uh, that's that's ridiculous and you, you you won't be able to get games complete in under three hours very often if at all under those circumstances and the worst thing is that the average time between balls and play was about four minutes this last year Wow. You know, you can go to the bathroom, go get a hot dog uh, in, in those four minutes and you don't miss much action because usually uh, that's that's what the average is. Four minutes between balls in play, nine strikeouts per game for each team, uh, stolen bases, whatever happened to those. You know, you go back 50 years then, <laughs> you know, this is this is the baseball of uh a Weaver's age, you know, the three waiting for the big three-run home run. And I don't mind that, but yeah. there's got to be a countervailing force uh, like the St. Louis Cardinals were, for example, in, in the 1980s, a team that was very dependent on speed and was smart about running the bases, but, but was fun to watch. And now you're, you're waiting for some uh, big, big, Slutter to come up Mm -hmm. and either strike out or hit the ball 450 feet. Well, that's not very entertaining to me.
0: Well, I was thinking about it because Dante Bichette went to had uh, had the uh, Ted Williams School of Hitting, which was if you're if you're down two strikes, you try to go the other way. And I'll never forget him talking about that over and over and over. You you're down two strikes, you go the other way. And no one does that anymore because it's all about launch angles and all this stuff that has crept into. This part of it, I'm, I'm, people who are listening to this, okay, I'm not anti sabermetrics or an, analytics in there. It's just, it's just aesthetically speaking, it's harder to absorb baseball because the results there's there's no no longer the incremental results. It's feast or famine, and I think that has made that has made baseball that much more. It, it well certainly not quick if you're you're changing picker if you're averaging 4.5 pitchers a game i mean like there's a lot of things that are wrong with major league baseball and it's not just financial and i think people i just need to look at this and say this game is is faltering because people don't want to sit there for four and a half hours to watch a baseball game
1: nobody watches a game unless they go to it and even then they leave nobody watches a game from start to finish anymore Uh, unless it's a playoff game i love baseball uh, the only games last year I really watched from start to finish were playoff games and only a select number of uh, those playoff games. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought the playoffs were uh, were fine. But, uh, you know, you're you're talking about a, a commissioner now who is so much in denial that when at the All-Star game, I think last year, uh, he, he was asked about the clear mistrust that exists between ownership and quote unquote labor right. in Major League Baseball. And I heard Ryan Clark uh, on ESPN say the other day that the gap in football is greater. Uh, and with all due respect, I I think I understood the point he was making, but uh, he hasn't seen much yeah. baseball, at least uh, from a negotiating point of view. And I know they haven't had a work stoppage uh, you know, in, in, in the last quarter century, but at the same time, the level of mistrust uh, between the two sides is far greater than it is in football. Football's gotten the collective bargaining agreements fairly easily, uh, maybe because the owners have won out mm-hmm. and counterintuitive to say it, but the stronger the sport, the more the owners kind of get their way. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you pointed out, the baseball union is very strong and they do push back. But but Montfort's in uh, Manfred, uh, not Montfort, uh, Montfort may be in denial, too, about a lot of things. But Manfred <laughs> said, well, I think this whole relationship thing gets overplayed and misinterpreted. And it's not a big deal. And any collective bargaining negotiation, people are going to disagree. It, there, it, disagreement isn't a descriptive term that applies here. Distrust yeah. is, it's not just disagreement. Right. I mean, they can't agree on, on basic facts. They can't even get the financial facts right to the point where both sides say, okay, I, I can accept your version of the truth based on the facts that you presented here. They're, they're arguing over what, uh, what the facts uh, really are. And it, it's a shame because I think the town uh, in baseball, the young town, is remarkable, mm-hmm. remarkable. Uh, you have some great young players uh, in the game. And, uh, you know, the, the, these people think uh, that the fans are gonna come storming through the gates to watch a shortened season. Uh, if they don't get started on time on, on March 31st and it's April, late April, Remember what it was like in 1995 when Coors Field was opening. It was April 29th was opening day at Coors Field mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for a regular season game. They they played exhibition games of course, yeah. but the first regular season home game was April 29th. And people were excited, in new ballpark. Mm-hmm. That isn't true around here now, and they had a pretty good team in 1995. They don't have a good team now.
0: Well, let me let me just throw this out there for people who don't who weren't around and don't remember the. 95 uh uh 94 95 strike it was it was one of the most vicious labor disputes i've seen in professional sports next to the 87 strike strike in football and that wiped out half of the well killed off the world series in 1994 um that 94 Rockies team was actually kind of fun. It had they just got Ellis Burks that year, and uh, he was yeah. hitting home runs, he was adding to the, the already great, potent lineup. Um, wiped out that World Series, and then they they lopped off, I think, 20 games of the 95 season. I think is how much they they didn't play. And yeah, 18, 18.
1: Uh, I think it was, it was 144, yeah. yeah, uh, 18 games were. Over- Lopped off, and it could be argued that that was a good thing for the Rockies because they had run out of pitching after 144 games, and if the season had gone 162, they wouldn't have qualified even as a wild card team. Of course, we all know the Rockies have never won a division title; they never finished first. Yeah. But your point is well taken. 1994 baseball had an all-time average attendance total of 31,256 took them 12 years to get back to that oh, level. Okay. Whatever the 12. attendance was last year, if they go through something similar this year, even if they play 140, 150 games, whatever, it'll take them 20 years oh. to get back where to where attendance was last year and attendance was not very high last year. Uh, 2019, Last season with full capacity, 28,203. Four straight year it had dropped. And, uh, you know, as, as we know, uh, baseball has been propped up by these regional sports networks. But more households than ever now are altering their viewing habits and they're dropping cable. And, um, you know, they need a new broadcast model, too. That's not the subject of these. Yeah. Like the bargaining talks, but baseball needs to fix that. And the game isn't because of the sport. The game has diminished and become much less appealing.
0: Well, I, I got to point this out, too. That's coming back to Dick Monfort. The Rockies signed what I can only say is the most pathetic TV deal I have Ridiculous. ever seen. Because Dick Monfort was frightened about what was going on with Altitude. And it was, uh, I'll never forget, I was uh, around some NBA people, uh, and they were like, what did Dick Montfort just do? They just signed one of the worst te- <laughs> the worst TV deals I've ever seen for a professional sports team. And they did it because it was just scared. It was just scared. And these regional sports packages, the NBA is going through it. NHL is going through it. Everyone's going through it right now, uh, except for the NFL, which is the only major sport that has a national TV. The NFL will have its
1: Thursday night games next year with Al Michaels apparently calling the games on Amazon.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Why can't other leagues get that right? I have no idea. I I just don't know. But coming back to baseball, I mean, we are now at a point where – the league, I think, sits at a precipice. If they lose games, if they if they go down to a hundred and because I think owners are perfectly willing to lop off some games of the season, I really do think that at this point. And I think they're they're not really taking to account history, which is like it took the home the steroid induced home run derbies in nineteen ninety eight for them interest to kind of peak back up a little. That's how long it took. And that was, what, four years later. And as you point out, it took 12 years for them to recover attendance. 12 years. Yeah, Yeah,
1: that's right. Uh, You know, there were spikes around that time in 98. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen in sports is the pursuit in 2007 by Barry Bonds, the all-time home run record. And nobody gave a spit.
0: Yeah,
1: nobody cared. Nobody said that. That's how much home runs had been devalued, and how clear it was by then that something was going on with Bonds and mm-hmm. uh, he. He was a steroid user, although uh, you know he uh, he's he's getting now a, a high enough percentage. I know he's not on the writers' ballot anymore, but I think some committee is is going to let him in along with Clemens. Uh, in mm-hmm. in years to come, but but I, I remember that going on and and, and nobody cared, and, and I remember Harry Edwards, uh, uh, the great sociologist, coming on our program and talking about uh, standard bearers and record holders. <laughs> uh, very interesting. That Henry Aaron would always be his standard bearers, the home okay. run champ. Uh, right. The record holder might be somebody else, but the standard bearer was was always going to be Henry Aaron. And even Roger Maris uh, for the home run record. I mean, here's a guy Sammy Sosa. How many times did he hit 60 home runs? Three. Yeah,
0: that's
1: right. He'll never be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not even, not even close. So, and, yeah. it, it, it's just a, it, it's been it's been devalued. Uh, you know, baseball fans said or basically people my age now. You know, 25 to 54. Good luck. You know, if if, if you have uh, kids of that age, baseball isn't their favorite sport. I know that.
0: It's very, very, very true. And gone are the Halcyon days of Mile High Stadium having seventy-five to eighty-three thousand people in it. And oh sure, sure. Yeah. it is. It's those gates are gone. But I mean, uh, I, I just we're even
1: drawing three million at Coors Field, which, uh, you know, oh, yeah. which which did happen. Or something very close to those days are gone.
0: No, those free No. Oh man. Well, I hope with the uh, no one hopes that cooler heads prevail, but to be quite honest with you, I this the way that major league baseball is run. I'm so sick of everything around them. And I think I reflect, and maybe you, you even you, Sandy, reflect a growing just distaste for the way base the business of baseball and the way they just and, and historically arrogantly manage the way they they deal with the public all this stuff i think people are now are just like we're just kind of sick of this people we're just sick of this they're waiting for a reason to come back and no one and baseball's like arrogantly saying nobody's giving them any
1: reason right Right. and and baseball depends on its romance Mm -hmm. and that's been drained uh completely uh i mean if i see an uh you know, a world series game on, on YouTube from, uh, years gone by, I'd rather watch that than watch a game being played now in which, you know, you, you can take a nap, uh, wake up 15, 20 minutes later, and maybe there hasn't been a ball put in play. They're all <laughs> strikeouts and walks and, uh, you know, uh, Trips to the mound, although I know that's that's been limited some, but it's the the pace of the game is is the issue rather than the length of the game. Mm -hmm. And when when games are you know finish four three or five two and they take three and a half hours, what's what's the point of that? I can understand a twelve to ten game. Taking three and a half hours, yeah. but how can a five, three, six, two kind of game that should fly through two and a half hours? I mean, I watched a World Series game from the 70s, a game seven. I think it was the Pirates and the Orioles a while back. And it was a two hour game. It was yeah. a game for the World Series title
0: <laughs> in 1971. It took two hours. Oh, they Oh, for those days again, Sandy. Okay, well, I will, I will mercifully, I'll mercifully all mercifully, let you go. You've uh, been gracious enough to join me on my uh, on my podcast many times, and I, I really do appreciate every time you come on. Um, you've been one of the best guests I've had, and I hope to have you on again soon to to, to talk, about, talk about Glad stuff. Glad to too. do it. So, uh, anyone, anyway, check out Sandy Clough on 104.3 to Fan. Uh, when is your show? Where can they find you?
1: Uh, 9 to midnight on uh, Denver Sports Station, 104.3 The Fan. And we have, whether it's weekday or weekend, 82 postgame shows that we do immediately after the games conclude with respect to both the Nuggets and the Avalanche. And obviously, we have a Nuggets game tonight in New York and one on Friday night, I believe, in Boston, which is an early start. Mm-hmm. So there are occasions where we will come on the fan at seven 30 or eight o'clock or eight 30 and continue straight through uh, until midnight, but we'll be leading with uh, a nuggets and or avalanche post game show. And uh, we've enjoyed it. The commitment has been there and I admit I was skeptical at the beginning. I thought they'd, maybe pick their spots a little more, but they're completely committed to it uh, at the fan. And uh, uh, the station deserves uh, a lot of credit for it. And and we have people I know you respect. Uh, Matt Moore comes on with us and mm-hmm. George Carl after Nugget games. and We have Adrian Dater on uh, most of the time after uh, Avalanche games to talk about uh, uh, the one team in town that does appear to be championship ready yeah, right. at the moment uh this is as good a regular season start as the avalanche have ever had so uh, uh they're the
0: best show in town at the moment that's very true and check that check out sandy well check out sandy and uh, regardless um you know if you just sandy and sean have a great show and if you like me okay sean and sandy are like me okay so if you if you, you're listening to this and you like Jeff. <laughs> i'll buy that <laughs> you will like you will like uh sandy and sean at 104.3 the fan in denver and go to they have an app uh you can listen to them live on an app or you can go to uh 104.3 or the fan.com and uh, check them out there so uh thank you again sandy i appreciate you coming on and uh i'll be talking to you guys in a couple of days for the trade deadline talk to you later